Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Good morning. It's good to have you at Crosswinds. And if you're a visitor, it's especially good to have you here in our church family. Or if you're somebody who's joining us via live stream, it's, it's nice to have you. Today we are starting a new series for the next four weeks on the book of Ruth called From Ruin to Restoration. And it's not going to be that long. It's only a four-week series. We're going to do one chapter a week. And I'm just going to begin by giving you sort of the big idea of what we're going to look at this morning. And by the way, if you have your outlines, I just put it right there on the top for you so we can read it and we can always go right back to it because we have a lot of stuff to cover this morning. It is this. This book, that is of Ruth, shows us how in the worst of times, God uses the most unlikely circumstances and the most unlikely people to do good to his people and make his name famous in the world. So no matter what we face as Christians, we do not lose hope. Now, some of you this morning have come in in that place where you look at your future and you feel sort of hopeless. You don't see how God could do anything good with the circumstances that you face or the life that you're in. And if that's you this morning, I really want to encourage you. Stick with us for the next four weeks as we see how God can take a life from ruin to restoration and do incredible good for his people and make his name famous in the world through it. God loves to use the most unlikely of circumstances and the most unlikely of people to make his name famous. And this is why it's so incredibly important that you and I stick together through this series and you'll be incredibly encouraged. Now, what we're going to do this morning is the first chapter breaks sort of into two pieces. The first five verses set the scene for the rest of the book. And then the rest of the first chapter just sort of introduces us to what's going to happen in the chapters that follow. So I'm going to just look at the beginning here, set the scene for the book, and then we'll just take a look at the introduction, and I'll pull a couple of key application points that we can make through it. So let's go ahead and read the first five verses and just give you the background of the book. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were um, Ephrathites from Benjamin, or from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the other, the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, this is a rich background, and as we just start to read through it, there's a lot of things that we don't understand of significance that's going on here. 
first thing we need to see is the book of Ruth is not a book of fiction. It's a book of actual history. It takes place in the time of the judges. And when you see it says it takes place when the judges ruled, that's not just a time stamp to tell you when the book took place, but that's also a theological description of what life was like in the time when this book unfolds. Let me tell you briefly the story of God's people. We learned this as we were in the book of Genesis. Remember how God called Abraham from Ur the Chaldees to the promised land? And then Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob's name eventually gets changed to Israel, and he has 12 sons. And they end up in Egypt. They go in at about 70 in number. They come out after 400 years, and they have a huge number. And the reason they come out is because um, while at first the Pharaoh was favorable to Joseph, 400 years later, there's a Pharaoh who's not favorable to him and his children at all. In fact, he tries to genocide them by making them throw their male children in the Nile River to drown. And God makes his name famous by raising up a deliverer, Moses, who takes them out. And he brings them right to the edge of the promised land and... Do they go into the promised land? No, they don't. With a lack of faith, they rebel against God one final time. And God says, enough of you guys. You're going to have to walk in circles until every one of you die off in the wilderness. And it's your children that are going to go into the promised land. Remember that? And under Joshua, the children go into the promised land. And they conquer the promised land. But here is where... Something new in the story starts to come into our lives. They, you realize they didn't conquer all of the promised land. There was pockets of resistance that were left there. And it was the grandchildren of the Exodus generation. It was their job to finish the job of wiping out the pockets of resistance. And Moses had said to them in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 17 through 18, you must destroy the Amalekites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Jebusites, or you'll learn their, their detestable ways and start to worship their God. The book of Judges begins with the grandchildren of the Exodus generation. And instead of wiping out those small pockets of Canaanite and Amorite resistance, those guys start to regroup and the grandchildren of the Exodus start to acclimate with them and start to become like them, and start to worship like them. And in fact, instead of there being order in the nation of Israel, there's a constant refrain in the book of Judges that says this, in, the, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. The idea is there is no strong leadership, and everything is in chaos. The book of Judges also tells us there's a constant cycle that happened. That God had promised them, them that if they would sin, they would suffer. And they sinned. And they would go after these other false gods of the Amorites and Canaanites and acclimate into them. And they would suffer. One of the ways that God would let them suffer is there would be no rain on the land. And he would also allow a, a foreign country to sort of oppress them or partially conquer them. And then what God would do is he, when they cry out to him, he'd raise up a judge. A judge would free them, and they would repent. But over time, they'd go right back to where they were before. 
they'd fall right back into following the sinful Canaanite ways. And this cycle keeps repeating where they sin, they're oppressed, they repent, and God raises up a judge, they're freed, and then they slip right back into the cycle all over again. And here's where it gets interesting. In the book of Judges, it doesn't stay just linear, but over time, the people repent less and less. They grow farther from God. Even the judges that are raised up get worse in character. Othniel, who is the first judge, is sort of the squeaky clean hero. Gideon, he's a mixed bag. Because uh, at some points he tests God. At another point he does great things for God. And then at the end of his life he creates an ephod, which becomes an f- item of false worship to the people. You get to the last judge, Samson, and he really messes things up. He's supposed to be a Nazarite. Supposed to stay away from the Philistines. <laughs> He chooses to try to marry one. As a Nazarite, he's supposed to stay away from fermented drink. He has a drinking party with his possible new in-laws. Does he destroy many of the Philistines? Yes, in his death. But does he free the people? No, he doesn't. And what we find out as we get to the end of Judges, after you've read it, you've seen in graphic detail the Israelite, nation, the Israelite nation has lost its way. It's become just as bad as the pagans that they were there to destroy and kick out. It's a chaotic, dark period of Israel's history. The best way you can think of it is it's like the Wild West, where everybody is a law unto themselves, looking out for their own interest. And the book of Judges is constantly talking about, in those days there, were no, there was no king. If we just had a king who could rescue us and bring order to our nation and bring us back to God. The book of Ruth, which is the story that takes place in this time, is the story how God brought that king. It's the backstory on that king. Because in the darkest of times during the period of the judges. In the most unlikely circumstances, an Israelite family that has left God and moved to another nation. For the most unlikely of people, a woman named Ruth, who is a Moabite. God does good to his people and raises the fame of his name in his world. Because as Ruth is brought back to Israel, she marries a man named Boaz, who has a son named Obed, who has a son named Jesse, who has a son named David, who becomes the king that brings order to the nation and returns the people to God. See how God is doing this? He's always doing good for his people in ways you never expect. Now, We know, first of all, this story took place during the time of the judges. And you've seen the chaotic background of what was going on and what God is about to do. But it also says it was during a time of famine in the land, in the land of Bethlehem. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Bethlehem in the Hebrew literally means house of bread. In other words, it's legendary for its good crops. But there is no bread in the house of bread. It's a time of famine. Now, why would there be a time of famine during the period of the judges? Because God is disciplining his people. 
because they have walked away from him. One man and his family have had enough of it. That man's name is Elimelech. His wife is Naomi. His children are Malon and Chilion. They said, rather than stay in Bethlehem and repent of our sin and seek God and trust Him to provide our needs, we are going to find some place else to live that has better food. He decides to leave for Moab, where there is better crops. Now, for us, that sounds normal. You know, if things aren't working out in Spirit Lake, you take a job in another part of the country, you know, where they've got better jobs and things are working out better. But it's different here. You remember we uh, studied this in the book of Genesis, how God had worked so hard to get Abraham to the promised land. And he was to stay in the promised land even in times of famine. In fact, Abraham and Isaac, whenever they left the promised land, things did not turn out well for them. Remember that? So Elimelech knows this, that his job is to stay in the promised land. But Elimelech leaves. What we find is this is a form of rebellion against God. Instead of trusting God to provide for his needs and his family's needs, he says, I have to take things into my own hand. I will provide for my needs. I will move away to Moab. Moab. Another interesting thing you have to understand. Do you know who the Moabites are? We learned this when we studied Genesis. Genesis chapter 19. They're the product of the incestual relationship between Lot and one of his daughters. Not only that, but as you look at the history of Moab, they're not a good people you want to hang around. When the Israelites left Egypt, remember they uh, were going to pass through the land of Moab and they were, the, the king refused to let them go. Balak, the king of Israel, or king of Moab rather, tried to hire Balaam to curse the Israelites. And when that didn't work, what did he do? He sent the Moabite women into the Israelite camp to try and seduce the Israelite man, men. We read about that in Numbers 23 through Numbers 25. And they did a pretty good job of seducing the Israelite men. The Moabites come from a product of incest, and they're known for being sexually loose, and other parts of the scripture associate them with the city of Sodom. Now, I just want to mention this. If you're going to leave and go any place with two young men in your family, where is like the last place you really want to go? Moab. Not a good place to have your boys brought up, but that's what he does. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3 says this, that if somebody is to marry a Moabite, they cannot come to the temple for the next 10 generations. So what's going on here is Elimelech is saying, I need to meet the food needs in the short term. I'm not going to trust God to meet these needs in the famine. I'm going to go to Moab, but he knows on the backside that his two young sons may marry Moabite women And that will cut them off from the temple for the next 10 generations. So he's more interested in money and food than he is in providing for his grandchildren. Elimelech, his name literally means God is my king. But the truth is, God is not his king at all. God is his king in name only. Now, what happens? As we saw in the beginning... 
Elimelech dies in the land of Moab. Is that God's hand of judgment upon him? Scriptures are silent. Possibly might be. And then the next obvious things happened. Malon and Chilion, his sons, marry Moabite wives. And they go from having a famine of food, which is why they moved to Moab, to having a famine in the womb. Because for the next 10 years, nobody conceives children. But then it gets worse. Her two sons die. Naomi finds herself in the land of Moab, a land that, by the way, is known typically for being very inhospitable to strangers, especially to Israelites, all by herself with no man to care for her. Remember, in the ancient world, there is no social security system. The way a woman, especially an elderly woman, was cared for was by her husband or by her sons, and Naomi now has neither. She is completely brought to the end of herself in the worst of conditions. And Naomi is forced to do the one thing she doesn't want to do. Go back home and say, let me tell you how my life has turned out. And that picks up the rest of the story. Then she ran across... Then she ran with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marriage? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See your sister-in-law who has gone back to her people and to her gods? Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death departs me from you. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, 
Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Lord and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. While the big picture we're going to talk about in this entire book is how God does good to his people and makes his name famous in the worst of times from the most unexpected circumstances and the most unexpected people, there are still a couple of things I'd like to just pull out of this section by way of application for us today that is good to look at. The first is this. You realize God's goodness doesn't always equal my happiness, does it? God's goodness doesn't always equal my happiness. Twice Naomi says in this passage that she realizes her suffering is from God. She doesn't think God in the midst of her suffering, though, is doing anything good in her life or with her life. She has lost sight of the fact that even in our suffering, God is always good to his people. Even if we don't understand how things will work out or what God is doing, God is always good to his people. Now, Romans 8.28 says this, For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. It doesn't mean necessarily life will be easy or the good that is worked out of our lives will be immediately in our lifespan, but God is doing good. Let me give you some examples from Scripture. Remember Abraham and Sarah when we studied the book of Genesis? What was their big challenge was for Sarah to get pregnant. They tried and tried and tried. And it says that it wasn't until Sarah's body was as good as dead that God finally let her conceive Isaac. Now, she went through a time of suffering, but God was doing it for good, wasn't he? So that God's name would be made famous, and they would see that God does keep his promises, even when it's beyond what seems like reasonable expectations. Her body was as good as dead, yet she conceived. You see how God did that? How about the time of the Exodus? Remember, we talked about that briefly. God's people were in Egypt, and they were being oppressed by Pharaoh and calling out to God, asking for a rescue. Where are you, God? And God let them go through that period of suffering, ultimately so he could do good to his people and make his name famous in the world, ultimately to be able to raise up Moses as their deliverer, and then to do the plagues, and then they literally come out of Egypt. It says triumphantly. Now, I just want to say this. As God's children, when we suffer, you need to understand God has not forgotten us. Our suffering is part of God's plan to write a story about how in the midst of suffering, he does good for his people 
and he will make his name famous in our, through our lives. Today, some of you have, are here and you are going through suffering. And you're in the same point as Naomi. God has allowed me to go through suffering, but you're saying, where in the world is there any good in this? You need to know. I don't know where or how, but God will do good through the suffering that you face. He may rescue you later. He may uh, do it through your children or your grandchildren. But don't always expect that a Christian life is filled with happiness and ease and contentment. The Christian life has times of suffering in it. But God does good through all that. He promises to do good through our lives. He doesn't always promise happiness in our lives and comfort. If Jesus suffered... Why should we expect that we as Christians, little Christs, would not suffer as well? Did God do great good through Christ's life and make his name famous through the cross and the empty tomb? Yes. If that was the pattern of Christ's life, expect that some of that will be the pattern of our life as well. So God doesn't always promise us happiness. Second thing is this. Be careful of circumstance-based theology and thinking that God's will is just what feels right or looks right at the moment. You notice there's a lot of what I call circumstance-based theology in this story. Elimelech says, well, no crops. Better take it in my own hands. Move to Moab because that's what I need to do to make myself happy in these immediate circumstances. Naomi does the exact same thing. I'm too old Orpah and Ruth, there's no way that I would be able to have a son which could be your husband. She's referring to something of the day called Leverite marriage, which means if your husband dies, you were to marry his brother. So therefore, uh, the, the name would be passed on and stayed in the family. But Naomi doesn't have any other sons. So she says, even if I was to get married today and have a child, you wouldn't wait for that child to grow up. So Naomi says, I don't see how God could work this out. So you just go back to your Moabite gods. You go back home. You go from God rather than to God. You see how she thinks that way? Oftentimes, that's the way we often approach life. When things look difficult, we don't see how things would ever work out. We often take what is the most expedient way uh, to do things, not necessarily what is the right way to do things. For instance, maybe this morning you're single. You're single and you're lonely. And you're tired of waiting for God to bring a godly man or a godly woman into your life. And so you say, I just can't handle being lonely anymore. I've met this person. Maybe if I spend some time with them, I can lead them to Christ. <laughs> no. God says, trust me by faith. Don't just live by your circumstances. Third thing I wanted to point out here. Don't become so absorbed in self-pity you fail to see God's kindness to you through other people. And what is the most famous, let me read them one of those famous lines in the first chapter. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. 
Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there, will, there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. What's interesting as you study this, this is very similar to what we would call a Hebrew marriage commitment. Where you stay, I will stay. Where you go, I will go. I am leaving being a Moabite. I want to become an Israelite. Naomi has nobody left in her life to care for her. All the men in her life are gone. But Ruth, as a young woman, commits to be there for Naomi and to care for her until death do they part. What incredible commitment to her mother-in-law. And I'm just supposing this, but by moving as a Moabite, moving to Israel, I would think that Ruth would realize that it may mean I may never get married. Most Israelites don't want to marry a Moabite. Don't know. Now, here's what's interesting. After Ruth makes this incredible commitment to Naomi, what does Naomi say to her? Nothing. Not a thank you. No note of appreciation. Thank you for being there, even though I don't have any sons. In fact, when Naomi goes into Bethlehem and she sees all of her friends, what does she say? Don't call me Naomi which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. I left full, but I came back empty. I left with something, but I came back with absolutely nothing. Who's standing right next to her when she says that? Ruth, who has just promised to care for her until she dies. She was blind to it. Now, here's what gets interesting. You go to Ruth chapter 4. You know what they say about Ruth? To Naomi, Ruth has been better than seven sons. She was blind to it. Isn't that often the way we are? In the midst of our grief and despair, we're blind to the fact of how good God often is to us through other people that he's put into our lives to care for us and to carry, carry us through those difficult times. Another thing that is interesting, you need to understand that God can turn bitterness into sweetness in ways we cannot imagine. Naomi asks to be called Mara from now on, which means bitterness. But that name Mara, it occurs other places in Scripture. Probably one of the most significant places it occurs is in Exodus chapter 15. Naomi would have known this. It's when Israel is coming out of Egypt after the Exodus. It's after they've crossed the Red Sea. They've gone three days' journey after they've seen God part the Red Sea and then swallow the army of Pharaoh. And they start getting thirsty. And they start grumbling. Only three days later, they come to some springs. And the spring water is bitter. They can't drink it. And so they grumble to God. How can you take care of us? <laughs> They've just seen that three days earlier. And Moses prays to God, and God shows him a stick, or some translation, as you would say it, a, a tree that he throws into the bitter water. 
and it transforms it into something sweet. And they can drink. And it's interesting. One of the lessons is that God can take bitterness and turn it into sweetness in ways you would never expect and see coming. But isn't that exactly the story of what happens to Naomi and Ruth? As we get further into the story, we'll see that uh, Naomi's bitterness of having lost her husband, having lost her sons, has turned into sweetness in ways she never imagines. As Ruth eventually marries a man we'll see in the future chapters named Boaz. Boaz has Obed, Obed has Jesse, and Jesse has David, who is the king, who brings order in the chaotic time of the judges and turns the nation back to God. Isn't that incredible sweetness that God could bring out of incredible bitterness? So as Christians, the same is true. We never lose hope in this world. No matter how dark things look, God is, he loves to bring rescue in unlikely circumstances through unlikely people. Isn't that true about Moses? It was a dark time. The nation of Israel is forced to be throw their male children into the Nile River. In the most unlikely of circumstances, God brought the most unlikely of deliverers, Moses, to free God's people. Isn't that true about Paul? The early church was being oppressed. Through the most unlikely of circumstances, Paul, one of the great oppressors, was on his way to Damascus to go get more Christians. And Jesus shows up on the Damascus road and changes Paul, the most unlikely of persons, from the great persecutor to the great apostle of the faith. He did good to his people. He made his fame famous in the world. So when we go through hard times, my friends, we never lose hope. Because while the world may be falling apart, God's good plan isn't, right? Now, one other thing I want to mention here. When God empties our hands, you realize it's often to fill them with something better. Isn't that true? I've been thinking about this. What would happen if God had never brought the bitterness into Naomi's life? What would happen if Naomi had stayed in Moab, happy with her husband, happy with her sons. Her sons had married Moabite women. And they had Moabite children. And to the 10th generation, they'd never be part of the covenant people. But God had brought bitterness into Naomi's life. And part of that bitterness was his plan to do unexpected good to her and to his people. Now, some of you, all of us from time to time, go through times of great bitterness, don't we? Some of you have had a marriage fall apart. Some of you have faced a job loss. Some of you have had the death of a spouse or a son like Naomi has faced. Naomi had both. Well, this is a reminder to us that when God empties our hands, it's often to fill it with something better. There are many people I've met at Crossman's Church that it's when they've been brought to the end of their self, when their marriage has fallen apart, when their life has hit rock bottom, 
That's when they've come to Jesus Christ. That's when they've been born again. And they look back and say, I saw no hope for the future at all. I saw no way my life could move forward. But today, God took that bitterness. He turned it into sweetness. He did good to me as his people. And he's made his name famous through my life and in this world. My friends, many times in life, the world will be completely falling apart. But God's good plan for his people, it isn't. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I thank you for the incredible hope we get in this first chapter about how Ruth and Naomi faced such incredible adversity, Lord, in such dark circumstances of suffering. But yet I thank you that you took that bitterness and made it into something sweet. Thank you for Obed, Jesse, and David and bringing order in the time of Judges. And I ask that you would take us, Father, as we face those dark times and those pits of despair, and we don't see any hope or any purpose in what you're letting us go through. May we cling to this story, and may we ultimately cling to the greatest story of all, Jesus Christ. How is you allowed him to go through, our Savior, to go through suffering and the cross and the tomb. You did it to do good to your people and to make your name famous in this world. Because that tomb didn't stay full. But it was empty three days later on Easter morning. And you've blessed us, and you've adopted us through faith in Jesus Christ to be your people, the most blessed beings in the entire universe. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.